Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. We have these assumptions about how we think the world works. Like, the world is generally a safe place. People are generally good. I generally have control over what happens to me. And that when something traumatic happens, it violates those assumptions. Well, I started looking at relationships, same thing. Like, I trust my partner to, to take care of me. I trust my partner to respect me. I believe I have some influence over what happens in my relationship. I believe I'm safe in my relationship. And a betrayal violates those assumptions. That was Dr. Christina Coop gordon on Psychologists Off the Clock. We are four clinical psychologists here to bring you cutting-edge and science-based ideas from psychology to help you flourish in your relationships, work, and health. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado. I'm Dr. Diana Hill, practicing in Seaside, Santa Barbara, California. From coast to coast, I'm Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a Boston-based clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Brown University. And from sunny San Diego, I'm Dr. Jill Stoddard, author of Be Mighty and the Big Book of Act Metaphors. We hope you take what you learn here to build a rich and meaningful life. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. Our sponsor today is Uplift Desk, creators of office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. I love my Uplift standing desk. It's solid and sturdy and allows me to easily transition from sitting to standing while I work with just the push of a button. The ability to switch from sitting to standing throughout the day has been a complete game changer for me. I feel so much better than when I sit all day, and it helps me stay alert when I get tired. In addition to standing desks, Uplift offers ergonomic office seating, storage systems, even walking treadmills for your desk. Everything you need to up your office game. You can get free shipping with no hassles, free 30-day returns and return shipping, and a 15-year warranty. Remember, by supporting our sponsors, you are supporting the podcast. Visit upliftdesk.com slash POTC for 5% off your order. That's U-P-L-I-F-T desk.com slash POTC to get 5% off your entire order. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey... Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Psychologist Off the Clock is sponsored by online training and continuing education from Praxis Continuing Education. They offer multiple formats of high-quality training, including live online courses, free webinars, and on-demand courses. Praxis gets some of the best names in the field, people who do really amazing trainings, and you can do them so easily from home right now. I know I've really enjoyed some of the trainings that I've done in the past, and there's some great ones on the lineup coming up. 
Yeah, just looking at the lineup. Well, you can always do act immersion with Steve Hayes. That's fantastic. If you want to take a deep dive into acceptance commitment therapy. But I was also really excited to see Jonathan Cantor, Robin Gobin, and Daniel Rosen are doing a course from Ally to Anti-Racist, which is a six-week course using a contextual behavioral model of racism to cultivate personal and professional anti-racist action. I was also excited to see Dennis Church and Nova Silverstein doing a Foundations of Compassion Focused Therapy course for those that want to learn more about CFT. Yeah, you'll see some of our old podcast guests that we've had on the show doing praxis training. So check it out. And you'll want to go through our website, offtheclockpsych.com to register because you can get a $25 off discount code for live training events. This is Yael here with Debbie to introduce an episode on getting past relationship betrayals. I did this interview with author, researcher, and relationship expert, Christina Coop-Gordon, who's written two books, Getting Past the Affair and Helping Couples Get Past the Affair. And before we get into the content, Debbie, I want to share that we'll be doing our second Psychologist Off the Clock book giveaway. So check out our Instagram feed for more details on how to enter for one of these terrific books. So Debbie, this episode got to many central topics in relationships, but one that I wanted to spend some time discussing with you today is anger and its functions. So in my conversation with Christy, I sort of naively discussed anger in in the way that I often discuss it in couples therapy, and I admit it's sort of a little bit narrow, but I talked about anger as a secondary emotion that often comes after a hurt that we feel. So we feel hurt and vulnerable, and anger gets activated to kind of protect us. And she very kindly pointed out that while that's true, anger actually also serves a very primary function, which is to point out that there's been injustice and that we need to get activated to right wrongs. Yeah. And I just, it's such a coincidence because I had a recent episode with Mark Brackett from the Yale Center of Emotional Intelligence who wrote permission to feel. And he talks about this too, how we can use our emotions to learn something and how anger is often an indicator that we've been wronged, that there's an injustice in the world. Absolutely. There are many injustices in the world, but now is February. It's Black History Month. And so I think it's a really good time to think about how we sometimes just culturally disallow pockets of society to look angry. It is really important to figure out what the anger is telling us in terms of where, where the injustice is, and also to figure out how we can use that anger in productive and value-aligned ways. Yeah, well, and just to kind of piggyback on what you're saying, too, I think with racial trauma, especially, or racism, that that anger is so valid, and it is such an indicator of something wrong. And so, yeah, I just wanted to add that. I've done some training on using ACT related to trauma and specifically racial trauma and training clinicians in that area. And I think it's just really key to recognize that it's not about telling people like, oh, your anger, you know, that's irrational or something like that. It's like, it's legitimate. It's valid because you're talking about something that is wrong and that there's an injustice in the world. Yeah. So anger itself is valid. And then figuring out what to do with it can be just as important. And that's where acceptance and commitment therapy is so helpful. Because once we sort of figure out the function of the anger and what it's telling us is important to us, then we can connect to a value, which helps to guide us towards a behavior that makes sense for us in our own lives. And Debbie, you were talking about some of the practices that you use to help guide people towards figuring out what the behavior that makes the most sense is regarding anger. 
Yeah. So in my work with anger management, which is something that I see a lot, I would say, in my practice and have over the years, especially when I worked, I did clinical work in the VA setting, their anger was something that we saw a lot of. And I think often it's really helpful to do, well, the official word for it is a functional analysis. But what that really means is like really break it down and take a look at what's going on. And then what you can do is also take a look at, okay, when you're feeling that way, what did you do? And were your actions effective? Were they in line with your values? Because often what happens is people get angry and anger comes on really hot, really fast. And so they just react automatically without even pausing to think about what they're doing. And that's when people get into hot water with anger. And you could think of examples like road rage happening, but within the context of a relationship, often it's something like saying something you don't mean that's really hurtful or storming out of the room or, you know, if it's really extreme, it could be like punching a wall or throwing a plate or something like that. And the idea is like, can you pause? Can you notice that it's building and make a better choice? And so really breaking it down, like you can spend a whole hour talking about one incident and really just looking at what is going on there. And then what could you do differently? You know, what are the short-term and long-term consequences of that behavior? And next time, you know, what would you do instead? That original question of what is the wrong that you're that you're feeling injured about and what do you want to do about it is such an important question. And in a cultural context, we can sort of broaden that out by saying, you know, if there's broad injustices, what do we need to do about that to be most effective? Absolutely, the anger is appropriate. We need to take action. And then this question of what's going to be the most effective action to take. I mean, one of the wonderful things about anger, and the research really suggests this, is that it's activating. It brings people together. So if we take advantage of what anger has to offer us, as you're saying, Debbie, you know, in ways that aren't too hot-headed, but rather are really value-aligned and effective, then we can, hopes are, that we can make progress. I think there's been so many beautiful examples of that lately where people are just so acutely aware of the injustices and they're coming together and really creating some momentum around change and trying to do different things to effectively help with these problems. Yeah. Absolutely. So dialing it back to the relationship level, anger will be one of the things that you'll hear about, but you'll hear about lots of other things, including communication and forgiveness and the complexity of relationships. So I hope you enjoy this episode on getting past major relationship betrayals. I'm here with Christina Coop-Gordon, who's a professor at the University of Tennessee at Knoxville, and she conducts research on forgiveness, infidelity, and couples therapy. She's also co-author of the self-help resource, Getting Past the Affair, and the related book for professionals helping couples get past the affair. Even though some of her work is specifically about affairs, really touches on issues that crop up in any kind of close relationship, from trust to communication to building shared expectations to co-parenting. And so while we're going to be talking a bit about affairs, a lot of the messages of from Christy's work really are broadly applicable in any close relationship. So welcome, Christy. Thank you. I'm really glad to be here. I'm so happy to have you here. And I, I'll also just make a side note that Christy and I have like a history. We um, published a paper back together and 2007. Yes. I looked it up. It yeah. was a while ago. <laughs> I know. It's hard to believe it's been that long. So I, I think we're doing, 
I, right now I'm working with Mark to do a follow-up paper, I think, with one of my students, oh, believe it or not. Yes. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. So yeah. my graduate mentor is Mark Wisman and Christy and Mark have, well, the field of marital researchers is very close-knit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, it is. So right before I started the recording, we were talking about how your career started in focusing on forgiveness, which is such an important theme in any close relationship, right? Because inevitably we trip on ourselves and cause hurt or inevitably our partner does something that can hurt us. So talk a little bit about how you got started in your research in forgiveness and how some of your findings might be able to Mm -hmm. help couples. Yeah. um, Yeah. I started back in graduate school. And so that was the really early nineties. And I was just beginning to work with couples as part of my training. And I was doing cognitive behavioral couples therapy, which is great work. It's very, but it's very present focused and it's very much helping couples sort of develop these skills to manage conflict and sort of understand their current relationship. But as I kept working with this one couple, it really wasn't getting anywhere. And so I started digging around a little bit and found out that they had sort of experienced for them what they considered to be a really big betrayal around, um, this is going to sound bizarre, wedding China when they were getting married. And it was basically a moment where they were choosing their wedding China and the bride's mother was there and she sided with her mother over her husband or her future husband. And it seems like such a small thing, but it was interesting as we dug around and talked about it, the meaning of that event was huge for both of them. And it sort of just changed the way they saw each other, which in turn changed the way they interacted with each other and really destroyed their trust at the very beginning of their relationship. And it just snowballed from there. So I got very fascinated with this idea of forgiveness, betrayal and forgiveness, and started to see like, what is psychology saying about it? And there really wasn't much at all. At that time, it was considered to mostly be a theological matter and not a psychological construct. And so there just wasn't anything out there, but it was so important, I think, for a lot of couples. And as I continued to see couples, it was really clear that this issue was huge. So that's when I decided I really wanted to understand it from a psychological perspective. And as I was doing that, I was also getting trained in treating people with PTSD. And it was striking to me. There's a a model of violated assumptions that I think cognitive processing therapy is based on. And as I looked at that model, and it's the idea that we have these assumptions about how we think the world works, like the world is generally a safe place, people are generally good, I generally have control over what happens to me, and that when something traumatic happens, it violates those assumptions. Well, I started looking at relationships, same thing. You know, we have the same thing. Like, I trust my partner to to take care of me. I trust my partner to respect me. I believe I have some influence over what happens in my relationship. I believe I'm safe in my relationship. I think we have very similar assumptions and a betrayal violates those assumptions. And, and so starts off sort of, so there really are um, relational traumas, I think, is that how, that's how I conceptualize betrayal. And that sort of just started me down that whole path. Yeah. Well, and I got to say, so as you're saying, as you're giving the example of the wedding China, the line that comes to my head is a line that Andy Christensen says, which is most crimes of the heart are misdemeanors. And I think yes. that can yeah. really be true that these small things that symbolize something really important mm-hmm. that violate these really fundamental assumptions of our partner putting us versus, um, you know, their family, their their mm-hmm. family. Of exactly. Yeah. And yeah. then certainly when it comes to infidelity, 
an assumption mm-hmm. of monogamy and fidelity yes. to in the relationship that sometimes people have different ideas going in, but also sometimes people evolve over time and want different things. And that can be really complicated. So yes. a violation of assumptions is, can be small or, and symbolic, or it can be, you know, really fundamental to the way that a relationship operates. Yeah, absolutely. And it's funny because it really is almost determined by the per- people in the relationship. Cause I think people outside of the relationship can look at these events and rate them as more or less severe, but it, it's really a lot of times the meaning of the events for folks and their particular way in which that they've constructed their uh, assumptions and beliefs and expectations that can really impact how, how great the, the trauma is for them. Um, I don't know if I would, I still, I don't know if I'd say the China wasn't traumatic, but I think the, the her sighting over her mother with her mother over him felt traumatic to him. And it, and it was traumatic him because of some things he had happened in his past and things that he felt that she understood and vice versa uh, that made it so very painful to them. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about what it means to forgive? And and I also just had this broader question of if somebody, I think that there's this expectation that if somebody does something that is so deeply hurtful, like should we forgive? And if we decide we should, what are, how do we approach that? What are, What is the wisdom there? So, I think I'm going to separate out how I approach it as a therapist versus how I approach it as a person. I believe that forgiveness is good for us pretty much always, but there's a huge caveat there. And I think as a therapist, I go into it with sort of just wanting to figure out each situation. But my caveat is who are you forgiving and how is the forgiving being done? There is some really kind of interesting research um, on forgiveness that suggests that particularly women, but this could also be the case for men, who forgive over and over without accountability, and they're forgiving a spouse that's not very high, not very conscientious, and probably just badly behaved in general, that forgiveness uh, can actually be a very destructive thing over time. And I do believe forgiveness, good forgiveness requires accountability on the part of the other person. And when I teach a class of forgiveness, my students and I, we talk about little F forgiveness and big F forgiveness. So there's like little slights that, you know, just happen during the day. And maybe you let some of those go, like just, you know, as a way to get through. But, but if there's enough of those building up, or if it's a really big event, like infidelity, like we talked about, that sort of big F forgiveness. Um, And so I think just letting those things go really, really is detrimental. And, And so you have to address them and you have to address them head on and you have to talk about them. And the person that did it has to take responsibility and there needs to be some understanding of why did it happen? And that can be a pretty comprehensive understanding. It's not just thinking about the person that did it, but also thinking about what's the context of the relationship and even thinking about what was the other person contributing to that context of the relationship. And I want to be careful. It doesn't mean that person caused the affair to happen or the betrayal to happen, but what they did do is contribute to a context that may have influenced that person's decision to engage in a hurtful behavior. And the more that both partners are willing to look at all of those um, pieces and they're willing to do it non-defensively, that's where I think the true beauty of forgiveness lies is that you're able to, to sort of reconstruct your relationship and your assumptions and your understanding of each other in a way that's healthier, more realistic, 
And many times I've gotten to the other end with couples where they've said, you know, I would never ask for this to have happened. I would never want it to happen to somebody I care about, but I'm actually glad it happened because we have a better relationship now than we ever had before. And that's why I think forgiveness can be such a great process. Yeah. I'll say too, as a, as a marital therapist myself, that I love working with couples who have undergone an affair, not because that, that sounds bad on the face of it, but it's just like, it can all be out on the table and cracks Mm -hmm. that had long been in Mm -hmm. the relationship foundation can be worked out. And like you were initially saying, some of those expectations that might have not been clear, you have an opportunity to clarify them, come together and figure out what to do if there's a mismatch. And there's real power there to grow together, learn about yourself, learn about your partner and and create a much healthier, more functional relationship for the both of you. So as you're saying, like forgiveness offers a pathway towards that. Absolutely. And it's, I agree, it's absolutely rewarding work when both partners are willing to do it. Like it's like they're broken wide open. And so and motivated to, to change. And so that's really, I I like that almost way more than the ones that come in. And this happens even like the ones that come in have been sort of drifting apart and they're like distant and far away and there's no emotion to work with. Those, those are hard. Yeah. Those, that kind of a relationship is hard, but, and just backing up a little bit, I, I just sort of want to clarify this myth that when there has been infidelity in the relationship, but it doesn't mean that the relationship should end or it can't be healthy. And that I think is an important myth that you do a really good job in your work of dismantling. Um, Can you talk a little bit about how common it is, but also what's possible in terms of how couples, you know, can recover? Yeah. I'd say that um, rates of infidelity reliably, like any given year is probably in the single digits. It's good, and it's going to be a little bit more for men than for women. Although that rate is sort of equalizing as we get, I think, more into cohorts where women have you know equal opportunities out of the house and things like that. Um, the best lifetime rates I've seen are about. It's pretty high. Uh, about forty percent of yeah. people have reported um, in marriages, and and so when the reason why I say lifetime is that they do average across cohorts. And so you'd see like a 20%, but, but really I like it. If you look at the, the oldest cohort, that's the people that have most opportunity to have had an affair. And that's where you start to see the 40%. Yeah. Um, so, so that's kind of discouraging to think that it's been that high. The definition's pretty ranges though. It's not always, um, you know, sexual infidelity. There can also be emotional infidelities and kissing somebody else, things like that. So there's a range, yeah. I think. And, So I have a question that one of my colleagues asked, which I think is an important one, but is it always true that one should tell a partner if there has been infidelity? Are there times when it's best not to tell a partner about an affair? Yeah, it's funny. When I started out, I was always like, honesty is always the best policy. And I think in a lot of ways that is true. However, I have learned to never say always about anything. (laughs) So I will say I've had in the course of my career, some experiences where it's been revealed to me that a partner had an affair um, and in an individual session, because it was actually a couple therapy where it wasn't going well. And so I sort of separated the partners to really try to figure out why they were so defensive with each other and all this kind of thing. And, And this came out and it, I was sort of convinced that that affair had was definitely in the past. There was nothing going on. And the the partner was really trying to deal with 
why it had happened. And it was his guilt that was really getting in the way of the relationship. And as we kind of worked it through, we kind of realized that he wanted to confess, but it would really only be to absolve himself of the guilt. And it would just really, really have a very negative impact on his partner and the course of the therapy and be more about his benefit than maybe her benefit. And so I really kind of talked it through with him and, and referred him to his, his pastor to kind of also talk it through. And, and they were, he finally decided that again, it would be more about taking care of him than taking care of his wife. And so he kind of worked through that guilt with his pastor and, and sort of things kind of broke up and open in the relationship and it started going much better, the couple therapy. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was interesting. I think that experience made me less um, dogmatic about it. I still think in, in a lot of ways, particularly if um, I did, there's just a lot of, certainly if it's ongoing, I really feel like it needs to be, uh, I, I think the best thing is to, to confess it, but not always, I guess is the, the yeah. short answer. Yeah. So it sounds like the maybe rule of thumb is exactly. asking yourself what would be the yeah. function of disclosing Yes, if it's something that would help the relationship versus just to take care of yourself, that you might take a different approach. Right. I love that. And I think that question you just asked, that is the central question I'm always asking in couple therapy is what is the function of this behavior for this person in this relationship? So I love that you, you framed it that way. So you have a model in your treatment of affairs that I, I think actually again, can kind of be applied to many different kinds of couple problems. But I wonder if you can sort of talk through the the three stages that, that mm-hmm. you go through in your books. Yeah. So again, like I was saying earlier, I sort of see a betrayal as a trauma. And so we were looking at some models of trauma when I was developing this model. And I really started thinking there's sort of an impact stage where you sort of realize something has happened. And then there's sort of a meaning stage where you figure out why it happened and what do you need to do to sort of make your life go forward. And then there's a moving on phase of how do you start to put your life back together and take what you learned and move forward. So in broad strokes, that's our model. And, you know, to go back sort of in that impact stage, what we're doing is trying to help the couple understand why this betrayal is so difficult. So helping them understand that that violated assumptions and why that leads to behaviors that sometimes on the outside look really irrational and chaotic and emotional, and also trying to help the person that was hurt be able to say to their partner why they were hurt, uh, what it's, how it's impacted them, like an impact statement, and then have the other partner listen to it non-defensively. Because a lot of times they'll tell me, oh, we've been talking about this all the time, but when you talk about how they've been talking about it, it's usually the person who's been hurt raising the issue and the person that engaged in the betrayal, like defensively trying to explain it and minimize it and close it down. And that's not a very satisfying interaction. So we actually really spend a lot of time trying to help them understand that process and do it better. And sometimes that takes some work because often the person who's engaged in the betrayal is equally angry about something else in the relationship and may feel betrayed in their own way. And so sometimes I have to walk very carefully about how do I balance those two, those two issues. But if I do that stage well, then they start to soften toward each other. And that's the best time to then go into stage two and start really helping them explore, okay, let's figure out why did this happen? What was going on with both of you, with the relationship, with things outside of the relationship that really led to this happening? And we try to do that pretty systematically and carefully and compassionately 
to really try to get compassion and empathy for each other and themselves during that process. And then eventually they get to a point where they really sort of feel at peace with what happened. And, and, and that never means that what happened is okay, right? But they feel like they understand it enough to say, okay, we have a sense of how we want to move forward. And then we move into that sort of third phase of, okay, now what do we do? How do we put this behind us? What does it mean to forgive? What would that look like? Is this a good idea for you guys to stay together, given what you've learned about each other in the relationship? And if so, how do you do that? And if not, how do you do that? So that's sort of the, the process in a nutshell. Yeah. And there's so much complexity in there. I, I want to yes. ask a few <laughs> questions about stage one, because so yeah. in stage one, that's sort of where you see a lot of the almost like trauma responses and people, and you talk about this in your books that the person who's discovered can, can really have trauma symptoms like flashbacks mm-hmm. and intrusive, yes. you know, yep. and it can be really unsettling. So it is a time where you're doing a lot of emotion. It's like crisis management. Yes. In, a right. sense. in my experience, clinically, what often happens is there's so much emotion in the person who's discovered that this has happened. And as you're saying, the participating partner might have been really angry or upset about something that had been happening that would that led to the affair. And so it can be really overwhelming for that person to be at the receiving end of vitriol or, or just a lot yeah. of emotional chaos. So first, for the participating partner, what advice would you have for them in how to listen effectively? Yes. So I'm um, so glad you asked this question because this is the piece that I feel like if I, and we're, we're talking about potentially doing a uh, new edition of the book and the piece that's not in there that I wish were in there is talking about guilt and shame, because I think that's where a lot of these couples get stuck because the person who engaged in that behavior, a lot of times I think will go into a shame spiral. So the difference between guilt and shame is shame is often about, I am a bad person. And when you have that feeling of shame, there are two responses that are really likely to happen. One is you pull away and you shut down and you withdraw because you, it's an intolerable emotion. It doesn't feel good. And you want to get away from the person that's making it's, it's painful. So you withdraw and, and become defensive. Another way to become defensive though, is the best defense is a good offense. And so you can lash out. And so I watch and see quite often that's where people are getting stuck is the person has a shame response and they either shut down and try to shut the other person down or they lash out. So what I try to help them understand and often what I do and, um, is I, I do very carefully do individual work in stage one. We do a lot of conjoint work, but some work is better done one-on-one. So we have sessions where I'll work one-on-one with the hurt partner And I'll have a parallel session with the participating partner and I will start to talk with them about this guilt and shame distinction and help them kind of figure out that because you did this, you are not a bad person. But I think when you start to hear your partner express their hurt and anger, you go, it feels bad for you to accept that you hurt your partner. You feel like you're a bad person. You made a mistake. You did a bad thing. And our job is to figure out why you did that. But when you go in the shame, you're going to keep things going. So I just want to talk them through. And I talk about guilt is saying, I did a bad thing. And often when people can say that versus I'm a bad person, then the emotion starts to become more, how can I fix this? How can I repair? And it opens them up to express remorse and accept responsibility. And so we talk about these R's of accepting responsibility, expressing remorse, 
and offering repair. And that here, that's your chance to become a good guy again. That's what your partner needs in that moment. And you can show that you're not a bad person by offering them what they need and being there for them. And then we talk about listening skills and being with your partner's pain as a great way to offer repair, to show them you're willing to tolerate the pain of hearing how much they're hurt and holding that. And then you can sort of move back that. And that, I mean, that has actually worked pretty um, extensively. Now, one time doesn't always work. Sometimes I have to keep working with them on it. But when people get that shift, it can be a game changer in doing this work. Yeah. Well, and it's such a just general good couples tip. Like yes, yes, it absolutely tip. is. Somebody yeah. is upset to really, with you, right? Because of yes. something you've yes. done, rather yes. than to shut them down to really, I mean, to be curious about what it was that you did, both how they're feeling and also why you did what you did and how you can own it. And that's such a more connecting place to be. It's not easy because you're sort of opening yourself up to say like, oh, I did, I did do a bad thing. Yes. And yeah. that can be a vulnerable place. But the shame, as you're saying, doesn't lead you anywhere productive. It keeps right. you stuck in a cycle and it keeps you really disconnected from your partner because you can't own and repair from that position. Right. Exactly. I mean, we could actually probably do a whole, because I think guilt and shame are such important interpersonal emotions. And I don't know if we talk about them enough in couple therapy because you're absolutely right. It's not just a dynamic. I mean, I really saw it clearly in when working with betrayals, but now that I see it, I see it everywhere when I'm doing couple therapy and you're right. It is, it is a very, you can get them into very toxic spirals, I think. So. Yeah, I think we don't talk about guilt versus shame enough. And I think Brene Brown is sort of like the guru and it's is, so yeah. terrific, but I think we need to bring it more into the couple's world yep. because it yep. is so relevant there. Yeah. That, and again, it yeah. can be something really small like China, right? Where you mm -hmm. exactly mm -hmm. respond in a way that was hurtful. And instead of saying, oh, you know, what was it about that that caused damage for you? we drop into, you know, what does that mean about me? And right, it, it right. get stuck. Right. And that's a great, like China couple, actually, they were in the lash out phase. They would both lash out. And so, you know, rather than the wife sort of understanding why the husband was hurt, she immediately said, well, you should understand why I had, you know, to do, to go with my mother rather than you. And, and, and so she, you know, sort of expressed her own hurt rather than really acknowledging his. Hi, this is Diana, and I want to let you know about a workshop I have coming up on Sunday, February 21st from 1030 to 12 Pacific time through Yoga Soup. It's all about act and values and how to bring values into your daily life. So you can learn more by going to my website, which is drdianahill.com and checking on the events page. I hope to see you there. Take care. We've had a number of guests on the show that we've been inspired by and that are offering you, our listeners, discounts on their programs. If you go to our website, offtheclockpsych.com, you'll be able to find coupon codes for the programs of Dr. Judson Brewer, Dr. Rick Hansen, and Jen Lumenlen. So go check it out at offtheclockpsych.com and start learning today. I'm curious if you have any tips for the non-participating partner. And, and this is one of the I think really magnificent things about your work is that you 
make no bones that if somebody does something that's hurtful, that is ultimately their responsibility, you know, own mm-hmm. your actions. But there is a context and, and it takes two people to have a relationship. Mm-hmm. So given how hard it is to hear when somebody's really upset with you and when you've done something that you feel ashamed about, mm-hmm. what are tips that you have for somebody who who is in that discovery phase to to sort of work with their own big emotions in a way that is effective in getting them hurt because ultimately what they need is, is for their partner mm-hmm. to hear them. Yep. So what I ended up sort of building into the process is letter writing. And because I, it was sort of a way to kind of take a step back and think about what do you need your partner to really know? Because I think in the moment, like you said, those emotions get really big. And we all know when those emotions get really big, we do not interact effectively. It's just not, not good. And and in in those early stages, those emotions are pretty big. So what we found is getting them to write it down. And what I have them do initially, and this is, again, I'm doing some individual work. So I'll have them do just a brain dump, an emotion dump too, and just write the, you know, letter you just feel like you need to write now. And sometimes it just blasts the other partner. And I'm like, do not give it to them. Give it to me. (laughs) So, So, and then, so I allow them to, and then we kind of work through and I start to get them to ask like, so why is this so hurtful? What did it, you know, what does it mean to you that they did this? And really try to draw out some of those underlying vulnerable emotions that often they are not expressing in that first stump. And, you know, and, and so really, really try to get, because what we know, you know, Sue Johnson's amazing work on emotions, folk couple therapy is that often we'll say it with this angry edge, but really what's underneath is, you know, I'm sad. You know, one of the most heartbreaking was this woman was furious with her husband. But when I got her to really talk about it, she's like, because she was, I think, 60. She goes, I was looking forward to going into my life where stopping to have to worry about how I looked and trying to be cute for everybody and all this. And us just moving into old age together. And I really thought that we could just, I mentioned just sitting on the porch together and just being who we are and being accepted. And she goes, this affair has taken that away from me. And it was such a moving comment. And so we put that in the letter. And when she read it, the husband who had been a little on the defensive just melted. And all of a sudden he could get like, oh God, I took this from him. And he was actually able to do a beautiful job of hearing that, holding it, expressing remorse. And it really kind of turned it around. Um, And that to me, that was just such a great example of what we're going for is, is really able to express those emotions vulnerably, but it's so hard. And that's why I think I have to do that individual work of helping them understand why that's important. And the letter kind of makes it easier for them to do that. And I have them read the letter to each other in in session. I was going to say, that's something that I routinely do with couples that I work with as I Mm -hmm. do the letter writing exercise. And it, it's always such an emotionally impactful experience for them. But I love your tip of getting underneath the hard emotions to the softer emotions. And and for me, that's something that I'm constantly bringing up in therapy, that anger is usually a secondary emotion, right? It's to sort of, when we feel really vulnerable, anger yeah. comes in because it's much more protective, but almost yes, always underneath right. anger is hurt or rejection or disappointment or fear. And so mm-hmm. if we can share that side of it with our partner, it is much easier for them to hear us. And, and through, I know like the, the editing yeah. that you help them yes. do of the letter, yeah. you, you bring yeah. that part up, which is easier to hear, which I think yeah. is such a useful thing for, for people to just know, like if I can, if I can work to get underneath the hard edged emotions mm-hmm. and share the softer ones, that yeah. might be 
a more connected yeah. place. I do. I absolutely agree. And I think that's where the connection and the, the magic often happens. And I do want to put in a plug for anger and forgiveness because anger is also an emotion, a primary emotion when something important has been violated and it gives you energy. That's why in some ways we like to stay in anger because it's an energizing kind of powerful emotion. Right. And I think particularly in the South with so many people, particularly women are taught to be nice a lot of my work down here is to allow these women to really get angry and say to their partners, this was not okay. It is, you know, and to use that anger as an energy to do this work rather than shove their things under the rug and just make nice. So, so it's funny, like all this part of what's so much fun about this work, right? Is all this stuff comes in, all the important emotions come in and just learning how to figure out where it's the right place and, and their right purpose and function. Going back to the word you used before. Um, because I have a, a woman right now where her husband, she's leaving her husband and she needs to, because he, he treated her. I mean, it was emotionally abusive and she never really used that anger to stand up and say, this isn't okay. Yeah. But she is using it now to get out of this really bad relationship and to make some really hard decisions. And, and she called me, she's like, I'm angry all the time and I don't like it. I'm like, yeah, but you kind of need that right now. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with you for being angry. This is what you're supposed to be feeling in this situation. And you just need to, to channel it toward, you know, giving you energy to get you out of this bad situation. Right. Oh, God, I love that. And I was um, just looking at some of your recent papers. It might not have been recent, actually, but you did one looking at forgiveness in women who were at a domestic. Yes, um, violent shelter. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. And how a lot of them almost like f- forgave too easily and would go back yes. and didn't sort yeah. of get in touch with that anger that was more protective that said, no, that's not, that's not acceptable. And so I think this idea of making sure that the function that the emotion serves is one that is, you know, consistent with your values of living a healthy, uh, assertive life is really important. Yeah. Now the anger that we sometimes see, like I've seen, you know, (laughs) um, like I had one woman that just absolutely destroyed her husband's office, you know, and another one where this little woman who was like kind of a church organist type lady, like absolutely, you know, beat the mess out of her husband, like that kind of anger, not so good. Like we, you know, that's where I do a lot of sort of self-care and emotion regulation strategies that I borrow from DBT with some of these people who are really sort of out of control. But, but I think, you know, channeled properly, that's a really important emotion um, in the beginning because it is sort of saying this is wrong. It shouldn't happen. And I'm going to take this energy to make sure that I'm treated correctly and that my partner knows this is not okay. And so I think that's really important. It's Patricia Karpis, host of Untangle, the award-winning podcast that covers topics like optimizing brain health, finding your purpose, how to sleep better, harnessing the power of anxiety, successfully changing habits, finding more happiness and joy, and overall, all the many ways to live your best life. If you enjoy hearing from thought leaders, neuroscientists, psychologists, nutritionists, business leaders, and more, join us wherever you listen to podcasts. Another question that I have for this early phase is, what guidance do you have about talking about the details of the affair? Like, how much should couples (laughs) talk about it? What should they talk about? What What's not useful to talk about? So again, getting to that functionality part, because I think, mm-hmm. um, you know, when a betrayal first happens, one of the things that our emotions drive us to do is 
get a sense of safety. And part of that is like knowledge. If I know more then I can make myself safe. And I think that is a part of what fear drives in us. And it, I think is not always perfectly useful. So what guidance do you have on that front? Oh, that's such a great question. Um, There are some things that you do kind of need to know. I mean, there's, you you need to know if the person needs protection, are you in danger of, you know, contracting something? I think, um, you know, I think it is very reasonable to know who it was with and what the risk is of running into that person. And are they still working together? I mean, there's practical questions like that, that I think are really probably very important to talk about. And then it starts to move into, I would say a gray area. Shirley Glass, who was one of the earlier writers about this kind of talked about windows and doors. And I think what she's kind of talking about is there was so much secrecy around the affair that there needs to be some degree of openness to be healing. And though there's also some details that once you hear, you can never unhear. And so what I sometimes do is have, um, this was actually a tip given to me at a workshop by a clinician that I thought was fantastic, is have people write down all the questions that they have about the affair and we put them in a box. And then as we go through the process of sort of exploring what happened and why it happened, a lot of the things that they need to really have answered get answered. And so that I ask them at the end of the treatment, do you want to go back to the box and ask those other questions? Does that, you know, so like, you know, what positions did you do and how many times did you do it? Like all those kinds of, that's often the kinds of questions that really aren't terribly helpful. And almost always, in fact, I would say always, I really can't think at the moment, anytime anybody said, yeah, no, I really want to open that box back up. Like at that time, that safety issue that you talked about, that function has been met. And so those questions are no longer necessary. The one exception, and this goes back to the function that's so interesting, is there was a couple where the wife just really wanted to know all the places where the husband had had, you know, assignations with the the other woman. And I kept, you know, we both kept saying, like, I don't think that's a good idea. I don't think that's a good idea. He didn't want to do it. I kept, I agreed with him. I kind of kept putting her off, but she was just hanging on to it. And finally, I remember actually, I think it was New Year's Day one year because they texted me and he's like, he's like, I gave in and I did it. And we drove around and I showed her every place it happened. And it was like, she just broke wide open. And, and it was, it was like the turning point for therapy. And I went back and I was trying to figure out why and what it was, was she knew that it would make him incredibly uncomfortable and it would be painful for him. And it was a little bit revenge, but it was also, I think, a test. Are you willing to put yourself through something really, really painful for my good? And that was its function. And when he said, okay, I will go through that for you. And I will, because he was extremely shame prone. He, my whole work with him was trying to help him deal with that shame and him closing up. But he was willing to not close up and to go through and answer her questions and do what she needed even though it was really, really uncomfortable. And that, that answered a really important question for her. Does that make sense? That makes so much sense. And it brings me back to 
part of the way that I do the letter writing in, in my practice is it's also attached to like a forgiveness and amends protocol. And it, it sounds like that's kind of what it was that she was mm-hmm. looking for an amends behavior mm-hmm. that she could really yes. hang her hat on and say, he is putting himself out there in this reparative way to demonstrate his commitment and his remorse. for That's me. it. Yeah. Yep. That's exactly what it was. Yeah. And I feel bad that I hadn't, you know, I really, that was a moment where like, ah, oh, I should have been more curious about why she couldn't let go of this thing. And so I think if you've got people that are hanging on something and you're like, why it is, it is therapist. I mean, this is sort of a no brainer, but we really should be curious. Like what is, what's so important about this? Instead of, I kept thinking, well, no, that's just not good. You shouldn't do it. I really needed to think about why this was yeah, needed. That's a good therapist tip. It can be useful to sort of reorient in the moment and just say, well, you know, it seems like you're really hanging on and, and ask that curious question. Yeah. Yeah. And, what, and again, getting back, what is the function of this for you? What is the meaning of this for you? And then, and we might've been able to get it another, met another way, but I think actually this was ultimately not that bad a thing, yeah. frankly, for her to carry. Yeah. So. so in stage two, exploring mm-hmm. the whys and the contextual factors, I, I, this to me has been just such an important con- conceptualization of what you're doing in therapy, which is really to develop this coherent narrative. And I'm just going to read a a quote from your book because this for me captures it, which is coming to a fuller understanding of why an affair occurred is simultaneously the most difficult and the most important stage of recovery. So I wonder if you can talk about why that is. (laughs) Oh, I mean, it sort of goes back to what we said earlier, like this is their opportunity. This is the couple's opportunity to fully understand their relationship and, and really almost deconstruct in order to reconstruct um, into a much healthier relationship. And so when the couple is able to come to that in a non-defensive way, and they're genuinely willing to self-reflect and think about what am I doing and why am I doing it and how is it impacting my partner and where is this coming from in my life? then it, again, it can just be enormously rewarding work. And though, not surprisingly, I feel like every time we do, we write about work, we always say, you know, if people have personality disorders or sort of other emotion regulation problems, like it is much more complicated. And, and a lot of times it's that shame thing. Like, even though I can kind of work with that in stage one, it still rears its ugly head, I think in this um, stage. And, and I'm thinking about uh, the couple I told you about where the wife talked about how the husband had kind of taken away her dream of, you know, moving kind of into an easy older age, even though he did a lovely mo- you know, bit in that moment, when we got to stage two, he would only go so far in that work. And then he would just sort of put a wall up and he didn't really want to look with me at his behavior about where it came from, about why he had some of these needs that he had and why he got them met in the way that he did. And, and we were able to do some work around their relationship and their interactions, and they were able to kind of put their relationship back together, but only so far because he really didn't go very deep into why he did that. So I felt like we did end our therapy, but there was still a a sense of the wife not fully trusting him and not fully understanding where it all came from. And, and they were doing better together in the moment but because she didn't really know where it came from, it was really hard for her to trust the future. Yeah. And that's a real plug for both people being able to go pretty deep 
into understanding why. And it kind of gets to that security piece because if you really understand it and if you're the non-participating partner, if you really understand your role, then you feel like you have more influence, not only by understanding what it was that made your partner more susceptible to having an affair, but also the things that you can do to stay connected and monitor the risk and own your own part. And that's one thing that I, I wanted to talk a little bit about, which is Again, that the person who engaged in the betrayal of whatever Mm -hmm. form is ultimately responsible for that behavior, but that it's always really interesting from a clinical perspective to, to have a couple where both people are willing to talk about their contributions. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious what you see on that front, but also if you can just more generally talk about some of the common reasons that marriages become vulnerable to affairs. Yeah. Well, and that's why I think that letter in stage one is so important, because what I found is the extent to which the person who has been betrayed, and I would say the most immediate betrayal, because I'm going to get (laughs) to earlier betrayals, if the person who's experienced the most immediate betrayal, that letter writing is done well enough, and that person really feels heard and understood in their pain, what I've really seen is if that process goes well, then it feels like we flow better into stage two and the person who was betrayed is sort of softened and able to hear why the person who engaged in the betrayal did what they did a little bit better. And what that means sometimes is understanding how they may have played a role, as I said earlier, in the context of that decision. Not that they made the partner make that decision. Because what I say is, the context could be really bad. You still made the decision to deal with the context in a way that was damaging to the relationship. So we need to figure out why you made that choice. And so I often will start there because that's a little bit easier. It's starting with that internal piece with that person and with the other partner really kind of listening in. But then we can kind of make the turn to tell me about that context and what was going on. And then that'll often lead to, okay, tell me what was going on for you when you were doing those behaviors in that, that relational context, where was that coming from? What, you know, where's that? And often, you know, I started this working, working with Doug Snyder. He was a much more insight oriented therapist, more on the psychodynamic side. And so we do kind of pull in almost more psychodynamic approaches of going back to early childhood and what are the needs and emotional dynamics that people learn back then that we bring into our adulthood. And, and actually that is powerful work. Like that is often where we get lots of compassion for each other. Like you can see the light bulbs go on like, Oh, that's why you do that. Yeah. Oh, I thought it was about me. No, you're doing that because that's what you learned, you know? Yeah. yeah. Well, you have this really extensive list of relationship factors, outside factors, individual mm-hmm. partner factors that yeah. I, I don't know if it's in both books. It's definitely in the book that is the guide for therapists. One specific thing that I've seen come up a lot in my cases, this is, uh, this kind of falls along very stereotypical gender lines, but the husband is feeling like his sexual needs isn't getting met, tries to approach the wife to talk about it. The wife feels really uncomfortable and, and often objectified or there are complicated reasons why she might not respond very favorably to the husband's request for more sex or different quality sex. And the husband feels shot down and then asks for an open relationship and the wife Mm -hmm. doesn't want the open relationship. And so there's been like a communication about Mm -hmm. my goals of 
of how to meet my sexual needs have now shifted as we've been in this relationship and learned what's possible and what's not possible. But now the husband wants to open up the relationship and the wife doesn't. And, and the dissatisfaction continues to grow and eventually an affair happens. And what's interesting there is that there's these two kind of things I think that come together with infidelity, which is that there's a breaking of the expectations, but then there's also the betrayal of trust. So for example, if you had a couple that said, you know, our sex life isn't so great, let's agree to have an open relationship so that you can get your needs met, but we can stay together. Then that's a very different thing than if somebody Mm -hmm. decides to open up the relationship without consent. Yes. But for these couples where, where this kind of a dynamic happens, the husband gets, has been so frustrated. I've tried to talk to you about this. I've asked you to meet me where I'm at. I've asked you to make modifications to our marital agreement. And so I'm curious how you would work with a couple around that. Where I started to get curious is let's go to the wife's discomfort and understand that because, you know, part of, well, and, and we'll both probably a little bit about what's the pressure for him to get this right. Because I think what happens, you just mentioned she felt objectified and what he may not be expressing is I love you and I want to be close to you. And this is how I feel emotionally close to you. And I want it to be with you. Right. But he's not probably saying it that way. He's talking about the sex part. And so if her discomfort is that objectified piece, because she's interpreting his behaviors, all I am is a piece of meat and he just wants his gratification. And, but often what I hear from the husbands that I really go under is more, they want to feel that closeness and that's how they feel. And when they start framing it that way, it changes the experience for the wife. And when the wife is able to kind of talk about what it's like to be objectified and sometimes it is that some of, I mean, I've had guys here where um, the wife actually had an affair, but it was because the the husband wanted to have sex every night because that was his stress relief. And so sexuality came about just his physical pleasure and not her feeling close. She met a man that was emotionally close to her and ended up kissing him. And, and so I think, you know, go again, that idea of going, getting curious when, if we're just pushing ourselves on something um, or pushing and pushing for something, there's what's under that need. What's that drive? What's that, that motive? What's that function again? Yeah. yeah. Is where I would probably go with all of that. Yeah. So it's funny. I also thought too, I thought this may be where you're going. I thought you might have been going there at this because do you remember our paper to me, the the wildest finding out of that paper we wrote together is that men were like three times more likely to have an affair when their wife had just given birth. Yes. And I think I was just I remember looking at that and I had just given birth too. And I was like, oh man, that looks awful. <laughs> you know? yeah. But I think it's that dynamic we just talked about because at that moment the wife is just not available. And I think sometimes these guys are just not used to that and they feel rejected. And they're not part of it. And she's over here with the baby all the time. And, you know, it used to be just us and now it's the baby and what's, you know, going on. And so they don't know what to do with that. And, you know, again, like I say, make a destructive choice rather than a constructive choice about how to deal with that. Right. And, you know, just getting into the weeds about that, but that's such a hard time to have really in-depth communication <laughs> where like your prefrontal cortex is online because everyone is so tired and the wife yes. you know, might be nursing around the clock and the husband yes. is feeling a little bit outside of the fold of the family because there's such an yeah. intimate connection between mother and baby often yes. in those early months. And so it can be really complicated. But one of the really useful things is knowing that and sort of 
coming into it or mm-hmm. having a discussion beforehand about yes. you know, things are going to change. We've had a sex life like this. We've felt connected through this kind of way. Things are probably going to change. How do we want to take care of our relationship in the midst of this? And, and that's sort of the power of communication. I think you're dead on there. Like the more we can also sort of prepare our, our families as they make that transition, that it is going to be hard. And it won't always be that way. If you could give them a sense of temporal, like you just have to get through this period and then you guys, you'll find each other again. And so how do you stay together during this period and then find each other rather than I think when they start to think, well, this is how it's always going to be. And, and then all these misunderstandings start to happen. Yeah. So getting to that last stage. So we've talked a bit about forgiveness, which Mm -hmm. um, is just all important. And, this is the stage where you've sort of developed this deeper understanding. You've understood your own role, what was going on in the relationship before, hopefully, you know, are starting to work towards forgiveness. But then there's still this big decision about staying together, leaving, or, or trying to make it work with your partner. So how do you guide couples through that decision-making process? I think in some regards, it starts to come clear as we're going through stage two, I, you know, in a, a little bit like we sort of the stage twos where one partner or the other is much more closed off and defended. I think we can kind of still get some understanding about why it happened, but the maybe betrayed partner may be starting to realize that they just will never get that sense of safety with their partner where they are at that moment. And so part of what I want to do in stage three is sort of, call out the elephant in the room is how are you feeling right now? And given what you've learned and what you've seen and what you've experienced in this process, are you going to feel safe in this relationship going through Um, and try to have an honest conversation about that. And that's hard. It's really hard work. And in our book, we have some questions that walk folks through, you know, like, has this person made big changes before? Or is there any evidence now as we've gone through this process that they've started to make those changes that they need to make? Um, do you have a good understanding or do you still feel like there's a closed door and you don't get it? You know, things like that. Yeah. Yeah. I will say as a therapist, one of the hardest things to witness is couples who achieve that deep understanding, really love each other, but decide that they can't come together. Like the the partner who's been hurt has just been hurt too badly to, to trust again. And, and that is always, you know, you care about the couples that you work with and, and you learn to think that they're just wonderful people who are human and make mistakes. And to see that happen is, is, is a really hard thing to witness, but also, you know, I, I think sometimes that really is the right choice. Yeah, I agree. And and you're right. Those are really hard, especially when they're, yeah, like you said, two people you care about because you've worked with them really closely and, and, you know, and, and it's often really, it's particularly hard when they have kids and, you know, they really want to try to make it work because it is so difficult, but, but the pain is just too much. And, and they, the trust is just too, too difficult to rebuild. And so that intimacy isn't there. And the, I've seen many couples or just that situation just is killing them both. It's not healthy. It's not good for their mental health. And so that's often something I'll just keep drawing their attention to. Yeah. So. I, I want to read another quote from your book, because I think that if you do decide to end a relationship because of a big betrayal, um, this is just such good advice. If you end your marriage, it will be important for you to make sense of your original decision to marry this person. If you conclude that your partner is purely evil and without any virtues whatsoever, 
it will be more difficult for you to trust your judgment in future relationship decisions. And and to me, that's such an important quote because it really brings back the forgiveness piece. And mm-hmm. in terms of co-parenting, it'll just be a lot easier for you to co-parent, but it'll also be easier for you to be your own friend. And one of the things, and I, we might not have time to go too deep into this, that I think is so difficult for the non-participating partner is to re-get to know and re-love themselves after yeah. something like this yeah. has happened because yeah. you start to feel like, who am I that I could have been duped? Yeah, by absolutely. somebody and and taken advantage. I, I thought I was yeah. so strong. I thought I knew this person. I thought yeah. I could trust myself. So you both have to forgive the other person, but also, in a sense, forgive yourself. Mm-hmm. And trust yourself again, and believe that you have some control or influence over your relationships. Um, I also want to say that's true of the participating partner. One of the things again we didn't write about, I think, enough in that book is how it's, this can be traumatic sometime for the participating partner. I can't tell you how many, when I've met with them by themselves, end up in tears saying, I never thought I was the kind of person that would do this. Like, I really don't know why I did this. What's wrong with me that I did this. And so it can be extremely difficult. And I think self-forgiveness for those folks is extremely hard. And it's an important part of the process as well. And, and sometimes harder, I think, than the person who's been betrayed. So yeah, I agree. Well, thank you so much for your time. And I am so excited to share your work with, with our audience. Cause I, again, I think that although we're talking about affairs, so many of these themes are just so useful in any kind of a close relationship where, you know, hurts happen inadvertently or, or not. And we need to learn how to manage them more skillfully in order to maintain our yeah. best relationship selves. Absolutely. Yeah. And I kind of, I keep watching what's happening in the country and I feel like so many of these things also apply to just what we're doing and what we're struggling with just widely in society. Yeah. So so I always yeah. think to myself that we need more couples therapists, like yes. in, in, in the White House. <laughs> totally do. I know. I know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There should be a national couples therapist. There, <laughs> should be. there should be. I mean, diplomacy would be better. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I know. And maybe we could get bipartisanship back. I don't know. I know. <laughs> I nice. Think, yeah. I think it would be possible. Christy, I nominate you. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. If you enjoy our podcast, you can help us out by leaving a review or contributing on Patreon. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts, and you can connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We'd like to thank our strategic consultant, Michael Harold, and our interns, Katie Rothfelder and Melissa Miller. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you're having a mental health emergency, dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources page of our webpage, offtheclockpsych.com.